But first, we are starting the show taking a look at CMHC and the tightening of rules when it comes to mortgages. Well, who better to explain what the changes mean than Angela Kella, host of the Mortgage Show here on CKNW. Angela is on the line with us now. So great to have you on the program. Oh, great to be here. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, So changes uh, that were announced that come into place on July 1st, what exactly has changed as far as uh, having a mortgage? Well, for anybody making a home purchase with less than a 20% down payment, so far this CMHC only initiative reduces your purchasing power by 10% on average. Which is a pretty big amount if we're talking when we're talking about people who might be just qualifying for a certain home price or just having enough of a down payment to get in there. It's a very big amount and it's incredibly disappointing because although they didn't change the minimum down payment, they essentially increased the stress test by 2% or reduced, you know, the amount that, that you can qualify for. And there's no data really to back this up. The, the thing that I think is, is we're all waiting for is next week, uh, Genworth Financial and Canada Guarantee, who are the other two insurers in Canada, have a meeting with the Ministry of Finance to go over this. And I have to say the way that this has been done is very different than most things are done when everybody is in agreement. With the mortgage deferral program, all three insurers were brought to the table and this is what came out um, in unison for the deferral program. And the other two private insurers in Canada do not have the same portfolio as CMHC at all. And so CMHC's portfolio is very different. The other insurers don't agree with the data that CMHC came out with because in 2008, when both of them were active, well, when Gemworth was very active in our market. Our default rate for people not paying their mortgages is less than a half of 1% because Canadians need to live somewhere. So if anything, this only hurts Canadians that want to get into the market because we pay our mortgages. And so this, it's not like they're providing more inexpensive rental supplies. So it's just pushing these people that don't deserve it in any respect because they pay their mortgages. They stress test for 2% over what they're paying. And the only way that the insurers, the other insurers will follow is if they have a heavy hand to do so. Because if they don't follow, then they will significantly increase their profit share, which will upset CMHC because they'll lose market share. And if they do follow, it's because they they had a heavy hand, but they don't want to in speaking with the insurers as this announcement was coming out. The other insurers do not see the same risk that CMHC is seeing based on the numbers of people who pay their mortgages. So, so what do you think would have been the deciding, uh, the reasons for this from CMHC? Like you said, we don't have a huge foreclosure problem in this country. People generally pay their mortgages. So why would they have made this move? Uh, you know, there could be a variety of reasons. This is all very puzzling for everybody because the data that they have, I mean, you, you just heard the job numbers. The job numbers are great. Canadians are paying their mortgages. I, I think part of it is showing that they're doing something proactively. And then if people can't get into the market and aren't buying, then they say, look, we did our job, but that doesn't help 
people who want to have home ownership. Having home ownership means in today's market with rates as low as they are and confirmed until about 2022 with the Bank of Canada's announcement um, earlier this week as well. It's a great thing for Canadians to own a home because over 50% of your mortgage payment right now is going directly towards the equity in your home. So it, it, and CMHC also has a lot of rental um, portfolios in their in their book as well, which you know they're saying that they're being cautious and that they're being proactive, but um, I, I just don't see the need, and my industry doesn't see the need for this at this time based on it. So it's going to be a very interesting week next week, and next week we'll be able to confirm across the board exactly what this will mean for Canadians because right now. The competitors don't agree. They don't feel that this needs to happen. And if they get the chance, then they will not proceed. So it could be some exciting times and and a good time for competition in our Canadian marketplace. Yeah. Uh, CMHC has defended this, saying that they looked at the the recent financial and economic developments in this country, and they included saying that was the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, Do you think they're using that, though, because they're still, it doesn't seem like the numbers are still there to really back it up. Exactly. And, you know, most people that deferred their mortgages, most layoffs were temporary and people are going back to work, as we've seen in the numbers. You know, um, the people that deferred their mortgages, not many of them needed a means test to do so. And most of them did did so just to protect themselves or they had to do so for child care reasons or uh, so many aspects. And, you know, Jill, I bet if you asked some of your friends right now how they felt about this, some people are saving a lot of money as a result of not being out and about and spending on things that they normally would. And while we talk a lot about, you know, the people who are unemployed, we have to remember that the majority of Canadians are still employed and still working and they're not spending like they used to. So they're having the opportunity to build up an emergency fund and they're having the opportunity to really take stock of how things are happening. But we haven't seen uh they've they've had six months of deferrals so i don't believe that canadians are gonna not be paying their mortgages and i believe that the data that we have from 2008 in the economic meltdown um with our numbers being as consistent as they were i think this is just really too much and i don't agree with it at all Uh, one final question and this might be oversimplifying it but if the other insurers don't follow suit uh, genworth and the other do, do consumers have a choice then that you could choose to go with that insurer instead? Absolutely. And that's one of the benefits of being, you know, an independent mortgage professional is we don't, some banks only have one insurer or their policy is to only use one insurer or two insurers. And the other guidelines that they came out with was changes to the credit score that one borrower has to have a credit score of 680. Well, Canadians have the best credit in the world. So most were already fitting in there. And most banks that provided the best rates already had that requirement in there. And the not borrowed down payment with the prices the way they are people didn't qualify to borrow a down payment to make other purchases. So some of the other things weren't really relevant, but really them reducing the amount that they qualify for by changing the ratios is the biggest thing. And if the other insurers are not mandated to do so, you're going to see a significant people understanding that benefit of the power of choice and placing their business and asking for the other insurers by name. All right, we will wait and see what happens next week. Angela, always good to talk with you. Thank you so much. 
Oh, such a pleasure. I'm, I assume we're going to have to do this next week again. <laughs> uh, right now, though, as I mentioned before, we are taking a look at where we stand in BC. The modeling numbers released yesterday. It was the first time we got a glimpse of actual neighborhoods or cities within the Metro Vancouver region and uh, some advice or more advice on what we need to do moving forward. Let's bring in Jason Tetro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, and he is on the line with us once again. Jason, thanks so much for being here. Uh, great to be joining you. <laughs> what do you take? Uh, not, I'm, I'm not suggesting you had homework to go and read all of the slides <laughs> or go through them, but what's your take on where we are right now in BC? Well, I mean, it, it's one of those things where uh, when you have good news, it's just great to be on to talk about it. <laughs> and that's really what's happening is we're beginning to understand now uh, not just how the virus is spreading and, and how we're able to control it, but also how it got here so we can be a little bit more careful sort of moving forward and what to be looking for. Um, you know, one of the big things that I took away from this was that it showed that a lot of the people who were, you know, calling for those bans back at the, you know, in March and everything, it wouldn't have done a dang bit of good because it basically came from a whole bunch of different places. And when you have that, it's really difficult. And so we kind of had to go through that lockdown just to get to a point where we're comfortable. And now we're in a situation where we know just how much we can open up, how much we can really um, give people that ability to get back to normal before we start expecting to see higher numbers again. Uh, I thought that the virus origin was interesting, too, in the slide that, that looked at that. It was an extremely uh, colorful slide with all the mm-hmm. different uh, colors given to the different places. Uh, but and, and I think what that, and that you, your reaction was probably shared by a lot of people in that, particularly because when we look at other countries that did bring in the travel bans, we've often looked to them and said, well, look how good their numbers are. That must have been the reason why. Well, when you look at the ones that brought in the travel ban, there's only two that actually worked. Uh, Iceland and New Zealand. And why is that? (laughs) They're islands. (laughs) The thing is, is that if you have land borders with any other country, the likelihood is, is that even if you try to invoke some kind of a ban uh, against non-essential travel, there's still going to be essential travel. And when that happens, there's still a likelihood that you're going to have some kind of uh, transport into your country or your environment or your region where there potentially could be uh, the index for, uh, for spread. Now, this is essentially what we've seen when it comes to British Columbia. We have seen this with other places as well. And so while we can look back and say, uh, you know, there were probably things that could have been done better, a ban on travel probably would not have done it. And so were you surprised at all then looking at that particular slide that it was it was Eastern Canada where we saw a lot of the cases early on? We saw cases from Iran. Were you surprised by that? No. Um, and, and the reason is that we have uh, so much more travel both inside of the country, but also from Europe that eventually finds its way back to British Columbia. Remember, uh, I live here in Edmonton, but if I'm flying back from Europe, I got to go to Vancouver. <laughs> Sometimes it's not easy. Um, so the fact is, is Vancouver being a hub could be bringing in a number of different locations that were uh, affected by the virus into the Vancouver proper. And then eventually that could lead to possible spread. So in that sense, it's not surprising to me that we saw it coming from places where we were suspecting it far less than a place where we suspected it even more. And remember, China put on that huge lockdown that a lot of places didn't do until it was too late.
And what about the cases, though? There's a lot of uh, teal, I suppose you could call it, was the mm-hmm. Washington State cases because there was the argument, too, or people saying, well, why wasn't that border shut down sooner? Well, the land border is a problem because uh, not only do you want to try and think about non-essential travel, in other words, people maybe going cross-border shopping or something like that, but what about all the uh, commercial traffic that's going through that land border? Um, you can't really shut that down, and you can't really ask a truck driver to you know, come across the border lay down for 14 days and then start traveling again. It's just not possible. So the fact is that the way that the economy works is going to increase the chances that you're going to have spread of the virus through those land borders. Uh, We did uh, finally, or the first time we have seen, they broke it down more by communities and looking at uh, the ratios of the the virus where it was in rather than just rather large health regions, we saw different communities. What does that tell us? Well, what it tells us is something that we probably already knew, which is um, if you have a higher concentration of um, population, a higher density, if you will, then there's a very good likelihood that you're going to have wider amounts of spread. When you have less amount of density, then you're going to have less spread. Now, that may be sort of the general rule, and yes, we are seeing that. But you may also remember um, you know, back around the March break time, uh, some places in the interior were just simply not following, and then all of a sudden we did see some cases happening. So the fact is that while we are going to be moving towards that regional, um, uh, I guess, precautions, um, when you have this initial burst like we saw with this virus, you kind of have to take that universal lockdown seriously. And then eventually, once we've gotten control of it, start looking at the the different regions. So it's good that they're releasing the data now because we're ready for it. But I don't think it would have helped if we'd released it, say, in March or April. Uh, And what do you say to people saying that now that we know, say, on Vancouver Island, you could basically that one case or one uh, only one case and it's somebody who's in hospital. uh, What do you say to people saying that in regions, parts of the province where there are no cases, those should be able to open up faster? Well, that's really where we're going, right, is um, we've been universal for this period of time. And now we have to figure out, can we start going to regional? And I think that in many places across the province, you have that ability to go and and open up a bit more in certain uh, regions, whereas in others you may not. The overall um, sort of, uh, I guess, rule of thumb at this point is that you want to make sure that you are really not going above 60% up to, you know, 70 and 80% of, you know, return to normal at this stage. And then eventually we'll be able to go to that 70 and then 80. But at the moment, there's still that risk. So even if you are in an area where you haven't seen many cases, uh, sure, you know, probably be able to go out, probably be able to have some fun. But I still don't think that you should all be gathering together like they did in, you know, Toronto at that Trinity Bellwoods Park. It's just not right yet. Uh, The ages, it wasn't a huge surprise. We know that this virus has been in long-term care facilities and it's it's been affecting uh, older people, the the older population, uh, much more. We got a breakdown of all of the ages as well as uh, pretty even as far as men and women being infected. Do do we learn more about it? Do we know more about this virus now? Um, I think the big question mark has been for the last couple of months, uh, children and young adults. And now we sort of understand that, yes, indeed, they they can be infected. 
Um, we've heard from uh, different places around the world that there may be, you know, secondary problems, the COVID toes and the Kawasaki-like diseases. But in terms of, um, you know, how rapidly this is going to spread and cause problems, perhaps we do really want to be focusing on um, protecting the elderly because while the majority of the cases are following sort of, you know, an upside-down U-curve, um, the fact is, is that when you start looking at the severity of the cases, it starts turning into that J-curve where it's the more elderly people who are suffering most. We are talking about the latest numbers when it comes to COVID-19 in British Columbia, the continued reopening of the province. And my guest is Jason Tetro. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He has agreed to stay with us. If anybody has any questions, I want to call in with those. Star 9898 or 604-280-9898. That is the number to call. Let's go to the phone lines and see what your question is. Greg, go ahead. So they say, you know, everyone's talking like one day is like a week right now with this thing. And so if we go like three weeks from now, we're, we're zero cases. And we go all through summer, zero cases. Is there any chance of school going back to normal? If we continue to go at zero cases throughout the uh, summer months and we start to increase the ability of people to travel and we may even start relaxing those quarantine measures where if you have been traveling internationally, you have to stay away for 14 days and we still continue to see no cases, then it gives uh, a lot of evidence uh, towards opening up schools per normal. Um, they may still want to have uh, fewer kids in each of the classes, but it definitely is helping. I don't know if that will happen, but uh, I, I'm also very hopeful that it will. All right, uh, Greg, thanks for the phone call. Appreciate uh, that. And, and Jason, that's, that's, I think, one of the big concerns for parents as we kind of have this trial run going on right now. And, and you mentioned, too, with kids. So do we know at this point as far as why children aren't getting this virus or certainly aren't i mean we're seeing some of the side effects in some cases but have we figured out why it does it does act so differently in different age groups well yes in in one context it has to do with um what the virus actually attaches to it's called an ace 2 uh it's it's a sort of an important part of the inflammatory process in your blood vessels and your bloodstream. Um, and so as you get older, uh, the ability to sort of um, prevent that from going into, you know, inflammation and, and having severe problems with that lessens. So, um, you know, when you're a kid, your, your immune system is really designed to be able to prevent these sort of inflammatory outbursts, that type of thing, uh, even into your 20s and to your 30s. Once you start getting into your 40s and into your 50s, what ends up happening is you become more susceptible to these inflammatory problems. And because this virus is, is essentially attacking um, a part of our vasculature, uh, it can make it very, very difficult for us, especially if it gets into the lower lungs and starts really growing there. Hmm. I was speaking with somebody who uh, knows somebody who has a, um, a workplace where he employs about 50 people and he's getting ready to bring the workers back if they feel comfortable to come back. One of the things he's done is invested in ultraviolet light stations and bringing that in. Is that an effective way of killing the virus? Well, if you're talking about surfaces, uh, yes. Um, ultraviolet radiation will kill pretty much anything, including yourself, depending on how strong it is and how long it's there for. So if you have a station 
one that has been essentially tested to be able to um, take out a virus like coronavirus and probably other viruses too, like influenza and such, then that's going to definitely be helpful. Now, is that going to stop somebody from coughing on another person that could potentially lead to a spread? No. But at the end of the day, you're hoping that people by now have understood that respiratory uh, droplets are one of the most uh, common ways of being able to share this virus. And do you think moving forward, because there's now this concern that the, the, that the numbers now look good and they're going in the right direction, but there is the concern and this talk of a potential second wave come mm-hmm. the fall. But if we keep up these measures of the hand washing and the distancing and the taking, taking steps to keep ourselves safe, do you think it's possible if we don't see a second wave, is it also possible that it would lead to a lighter cold and flu season? Not really, because a lighter... A- Sort of a cold and flu season is not just simply dependent on the social and physical distancing. Um, when you're talking about some of the viruses that are out there, um, they do have the potential to be able to survive longer than the coronavirus. Uh, you know, they're hardier than the coronavirus. So we may see sort of a lighter flu season, if you will, but we may not see a lighter respiratory syncytiovirus or rhinovirus season. Um, those are just some of the names of the different common colds. That being said, you know, if we can really get ourselves to a point where we're comfortable with the barrier protection, whether it be masks, scarves, whatever, then, you know, by protecting our own respiratory tracts, that helps. Hmm. And so do you think these measures then, as far as face coverings, plexiglass that's been put up in businesses, mm-hmm. are, are these permanent? It's, it's one of those questions like when you have a barrier that you know works, uh, would you really want to take it down even if the threat's no longer there? Um, there's been an investment made. So uh, it's really going to come down to sort of every company who has done this to decide for themselves. What I'm interested in seeing is when we start moving towards gyms being open, um, are we going to have plexiglass barriers between, uh, you know, um, treadmills or, or cycles or something along those lines? That's when we're really going to start getting into the question of um, how much barrier should we be using to protect people versus um, allowing them to protect themselves with, say, a mask. I walk by a gym every morning on my way into work, and I, I think about it because it's back, it's up and running, and there's not plexiglass, but the pe- people that are working out and doing circuits are a couple meters apart. But mm-hmm. I wonder, is that enough, do you think? Is that a safe environment? If you happen to be in a place with uh, nicely ventilated in a way that isn't sort of one big breeze coming from one part of, of the room to the other, uh, then when you sort of have these people working out and breathing and possibly coughing into the air, then it should reach a proper dilution as long as they happen to be um, more than two meters apart. And remember, you know, we tend to sort of blow our air straight ahead. So really, if you want to sort of increase that distance to maybe three or four meters back in front, and then maybe keep that two meters to the side, you're probably improving the likelihood that people are going to be safe. All right, let's uh, go to one more caller, at least for the question. Chris, do you have a question? Yes, I do. It's in regards to the uh, use of face masks. Mm -hmm. I've been doing a lot of reading lately. And one of the things that I've read from all the experts is, is that wearing a face mask all the time can lead to respiratory problems. And I see people all the time in their cars, on the street, everywhere where they don't need to wear a mask, wearing them. And I really think we need a lot more public education on the use of masks. When you watch the protesters, their hands are all over their masks constantly, and there's no way that they are stopping the spread by wearing them. 
All right. Uh, Chris, thanks for that. And then, Jason, you've got about 30 seconds to answer that question. Uh, yeah, this is something that we deal with in uh, infection prevention control in hospitals all the time. Uh, when should you have a mask on? When shouldn't you have a mask on? Uh, essentially, if it's comfortable, you're, you're happy with it, and you're not fiddling with it, then, you know, keep it on for as long as you want. It's going to be fine. If, however, it is uncomfortable or you're constantly having to adjust it or something along those lines, you're not really improving it. And you might actually go to something better like a bandana that's se- several layers or maybe even a scarf. All right, Jason, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much for doing this again. Hey, it was a pleasure. Take care. But what about all of the other viruses out there? Just how prevalent are they and how important are they to our environment? Well, let's bring on Curtis Suttle, professor at the Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences at UBC. Professor, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely, my pleasure. Uh, I think we don't think about this all all that much. I was reading uh, a piece that you were quoted in that basically talked about the amount of viruses in the ocean, and it was pretty staggering. Yeah, no, we don't think about this at all. We're we're essentially bathed in viruses in the ocean and and in the air around us. And so, for example, in a in a teaspoon of seawater, there are more viruses than there are people in North America. So. Yeah, there's lots and lots of them out there, but they don't do us any harm. And so what is the importance? What role do they play? Yeah, so what we don't think about with viruses are actually a really crucial part of the ecosystem. If we look at life in the ocean, uh, it's almost entirely microbial. So if you could put everything that you're familiar with that you might think you might find in the ocean, everything from fish to whales to seaweed, whatever it was, and you could put it on, on one side of a giant balance... And on the other side of that balance, you could weigh the things that you can't see, all the microbes. About 95% or more of those uh, uh, microbes by weight, um, or 95% of the weight of the ocean, uh, material that's in the ocean would be microbial. So it's uh, it's really remarkable. And so, yeah, we don't think about that. And those microbes are absolutely essential for maintaining the planet. And are they at risk or what, what, um, I I guess they're what they're essential to have them. So are we doing enough to protect them or do we even need to do that? Yeah, they're going to do just fine, right? They'll, they've been around here, you know, for the last 3.4 billion years or so. They're quite, they're quite adaptable. Um, So I think what's the most remarkable thing is that, um, that we don't think about is that the wheels in the ocean turn really, really fast. If you like to think of it, life, these microbes may last about four days on average. And so viruses, are responsible for perhaps killing half the material by weight in the ocean every few days. And that's absolutely critical because those microbes by, um, or the viruses by removing certain microbes, uh, actually release the nutrients and so, and that keeps the wheel spinning. So I think the thing that, that people sometimes don't understand with viruses is they're incredibly specific in terms of what they infect. So even though every breath we take, we inhale thousands of viruses, um, again, they don't make us ill because they don't infect us. So viruses, unlike many other um, microbial organisms, in fact, are so specific, they'll usually only infect even a subset of a single species. And so they proliferate when a particular species is in high abundance, and they propagate very, very rapidly. And so what they do in nature is they, when... uh, particular organism becomes too abundant, they spread rapidly and they knock that organism back and then they they free up the resources then for um, other organisms to uh, thrive. So they maintain the biodiversity on the planet and so we don't really think about that. 
and they keep the oxygen production happening. Yeah, we don't uh, don't think about that very often. How did they learn to become so specific and to play that vital role? So over evolutionary time, uh, viruses are highly co-evolved with, with the organisms they infect. Again, it's been going on for billions of years. Um, and uh, complex organisms that have more than one cell, in fact, are a fairly recent invention, maybe the last half billion years or so. And so the viruses kind of track their host organisms, and uh, they infect it. And as that host evolves, the viruses kind of follow it. And it's really one of the really interesting things is, is that as a, we wouldn't exist as mammals or as humans if it weren't for viruses, because about 8% of our own DNA is actually viral DNA, viruses that have got trapped inside us over evolutionary time. And some of those viruses are incredibly important, like one of those viruses that was co-opted by one of our ancient ancestors actually produces one of the major uh, proteins, which is in the placenta of mammals. So there would be no mammals if it wasn't for the fact that way in our distant past, we had got infected by a virus that got stuck in our DNA. Hmm. And also our nervous system. Some of the the important uh, proteins in our nervous system originated from viruses. So why is it some viruses then are bad and hurt us? Well, viruses just do what they always do. They spread rapidly amongst hosts that become really abundant, and, and hence why we need to physically distant, because they, they can't travel very far. So when, when populations are really abundant, then, then the viruses can spread rapidly in the population, just like happens when, um, you know, when the kids go back to school in the fall, typically, you know, we end up getting colds and those sorts of things because the kids are packed into classrooms and the viruses spread really quickly. So it's the same thing that they do every, every for revolutionary time is when they're very, very specific in terms of what they infect and, uh, and then they spread rapidly amongst populations that are really dense. And so those are the kinds of challenges sometimes that are faced by agriculture, by having organisms and you know, really only culturing one kind of organism in a really dense space that allows viruses to spread rapidly as well. And when we talk about them or look at them, like you said, they can spread rapidly. They they need the host. But outside of that, are they generally quite fragile? It really depends on the virus and, and what you mean by fragile. Um, in some cases, they can actually persist for thousands of years uh, because they're just in uh, locked up in, in protein and nucleic acid. So they don't have any metabolism. So they don't require any resources. Um and so if they're frozen or something, typically you could, you know, you could stick something in a freezer and it'll persist forever. And in fact, you can dig viruses out of permafrost that are 20 or 30,000 years old and you give them, you thaw them out and you uh, present them to the right host and then they can resume infection. Other viruses are pretty fragile. You know, the coronavirus is, is, is pretty fragile in the, in the sense that to, it, the way it infects, it has a certain kind of membrane around it, which is is not that resistant to degradation. So, um, but again, if it, under the right conditions, you could probably, um, you know, freeze it and put it in a freezer and, and pop it out a, a few decades later, and it could probably still infect. Hmm, interesting. But then again, you could also, like you said, that's why we were being told to use soap and water, and that that breaks it down and gets rid of it. Absolutely, because again, it has this membrane on the outside, which is completely destroyed by soap. So, uh, yeah, that that will take it out very quickly. So. Yeah, so it depends on the virus, how persistent they are, and under what sorts of what sorts of conditions. And um, uh, yeah, so each viruses there's a, lots of different kinds of them, and so they're they're quite remarkable that way. They even the way they look, 
And they're really, really tiny. I mean, to give you an idea of how tiny they are and that they have such a big impact, if, if you could take a, the average virus and you could make it so you could see it, say make it the size of a pinhead, and you were to take myself or the average person in Vancouver and scale them by the same amount, they would be 150 kilometers tall. Hmm. So they're extremely small and extremely abundant. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So we wanted to, we felt like the the coronavirus, COVID-19, was getting all of the attention. So it was very interesting to talk to you about all of these other viruses and just how prolific they are in our environment. Professor, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. All right. Curtis Suttle, professor in the Department of Earth, Ocean and Atmospheric Sciences at UBC. Well, there have been a lot of questions about travel, about refunds for people who were planning to travel and then couldn't because of the COVID-19 pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, sorry. And now some news today that WestJet has changed its refund policy. Well, let's bring in Claire Newell, the president and founder of Travel Best Bets, to get a bit more information on this. Claire, thanks so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, yeah, this is, it always comes down on a Friday, I feel. <laughs> yes. Two weeks ago, um, we got some news about Air Canada's changes, and today we got information about WestJet. And I, I've been getting calls about it because many of our clients were actually sent emails by WestJet directly. Um, that's what they're doing. They're reaching out to customers to let them know what this new option is. Um, to make it really clear, this is for air-only bookings, made either directly with WestJet or with a travel agent. So it doesn't apply to any of the WestJet vacations packages. And this is for flights that include a U.S. or U.K. city as the destination or origin. That's it. And they're going to be doing this in batches. We spoke to WestJet just before I came on. Mm -hmm. And... Um, they're going to roll out the refund offers in batches just because the, of the sheer volume. So right now, it's for travel between March 1st and April 4th only. And then they'll move on to the next batch. And do you think it will change then with right now the requirement that it has to include a U.S. or a U.K. city as the destination or the origin? Do you think that will be expanded? It could. You know, right now it does not include the majority of their flights, which are within Canada to continental Europe or Mexico, as well as the Caribbean, which is a lot of the popular destinations that I guess vacationers do rather than just say business travelers who are you know, just booking that air only or people visiting friends and family. So at this stage of the game, they are very specific about it. And it was the same thing that we saw with Air Canada. When they announced their changes to their refund policy, that came out on Friday, two weeks ago, on May 22nd. And they're going to be putting all their information online, still not online yet, not until June 15th on their website. Um, WestJet doesn't have any of this information on their website yet from when I last checked, with, which was just about 10 minutes ago, Jill. Mm -hmm. um, but expect that to come. However, if you do have an airfare that's affected, you'll get an email directly from WestJet. And I don't know if they've announced this or clarified this, because with the Air Canada changes, there were some questions still about if you had purchased a non-refundable flight. Do you know, will this include non-refundable flights, or are those you're still out of luck? Well, non-refundable flights typically were out of luck, unless you had just, like say, a non-refundable portion. 
the the reality is very few of us buy like full fares, like the fully refundable fares, which are full business class, full Y, which is economy class. Um, those are those tickets have always been refundable by Air Canada. And I mean, they've, I think they've refunded nearly $1 billion to customers. And the, these, these are if they're, um, flights that were canceled due to COVID-19, not just voluntarily you decided you didn't want to go. Um, but they are allowing the remaining value of the ticket to be put into a, a travel credit. They, their change was that there's now no expiry date on that and it's fully transferable. So if I couldn't use the ticket, I can give it to you, Jill. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, do, do you yeah, think, well, oh, sorry, will it, um, one of the other concerns people were having was that if you're getting a voucher, so say you had a trip to Italy and you can't, or you didn't obviously didn't go because Italy was one of the hardest hit to end and the pandemic, the virus was, was very bad there. So if you didn't go this summer, say you want to go next summer, but the price of the ticket, the price has gone up. Does your voucher then only cover the cost of the trip that was canceled or is that voucher for a trip to Italy? It's got a dollar value attached to it. So you would hope that the fares next summer won't be, you know, through the roof. But at this stage of the game, it's like a dollar value. Okay. And I don't imagine... I, I think there might be some pressure to do what we're seeing a number of suppliers, starting with the cruise industry, kind of what they're calling like a lift and shift. So there's no money out at all. You just, if you couldn't go this year and you want to go within a certain date range next year, you just get the booking and you don't owe any additional money. There's no fees to change it. So that would be ideal. And I'm, you know, I'm one to lobby for that. That's for sure. And, and so in the meantime, we're waiting kind of for more information on this, on the airlines to, to share with us more information on refunds and such. I wanted to ask you as well, Claire, yesterday, I'm an Aeroplan member. So yesterday I got the email from Air Canada, a very upbeat uh, email saying, we're reopening Canada, take off for Canada. Here's the schedule, <laughs> you know, book your flights, flexible booking options. Here's what we're cleaning, our cleaning protocol. Do you get the sense that the confidence is coming back? I do. In fact, this was a a good week in the airline industry. I've been watching it very closely. And some of the Middle Eastern airlines are doing long haul flights. They're losing money left, right and center, but they're going. And it's going to take kind of early adopters, um, the people who feel comfortable to get on board those, the airlines to actually start flying those, even though they're going to be losing money. Um, American Airlines announced that domestically in the U.S., they're um, increasing their capacity quite substantially, double what they had thought. So they'll be flying in July, 55% of what they were doing last year. They only anticipated to be doing about 25% of what they were doing year over year. So it's all good news. I think, you know, people do want to travel, but they want to travel safely. The the issue for us here in Canada is that we still have that uh, avoid non-essential travel. So until the federal government removes that, we can't be insured properly. And we really do have to heed the warnings of um, the federal government and, of course, Dr. Henry. Yeah. And does that in- include, do you think, traveling within the country? 
Um, well, unfortunately, there's actually a, a class action or a lawsuit that's being started by Newfoundland and Labrador. There, there's just no consistency within provinces. And actually, I've put it on our website. If you go to travelbestbets.com, there's now a blue button, Jill, and it includes seeing what's going on all over the world, but even within Canada, because every province has different restrictions. And because of that, um, there's that the lack of consistency. It's really hampering domestic travel within our own country. Yeah, there is a lot of confusion out there for sure. All right, Claire, we'll mm-hmm. leave it there and people can go to the website to, and check that out to, and get some more clarity on that. Good to chat with you. Thank you so much. You too. Bye, Jill. Well, earlier this week, we were chatting with the Fraser Institute, with the executive director at the think tank, about a study they had put out about the four-day work week. And it got a lot of feedback. People thinking, well, hey, yeah, that might not be such a bad idea. And the study basically looked at productivity and working a four-day work week with shorter days, not talking about packing 40 hours into the four days, working something that might look more like a 32-hour work week. Would it be something that could work? Could we still have the same level of productivity or even improve productivity by doing that. Well, a lot of people are talking about that. So we thought, why not revisit this idea? And let's bring in Muriel Protzer, Canadian Federation of Independent Business Policy Analyst for British Columbia. Muriel, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. Thanks so much for having CFIB on. Happy to be here. What are your thoughts on this idea of we could go to a four-day work week and still keep uh, the same level of productivity? Well, I think we need to remind ourselves that uh, we're still in the midst of a pandemic and businesses have a lot of other issues to prioritize at the moment. Many are still just trying to figure out how they can possibly afford to keep their lights on. Uh, But that being said, it's certainly an interesting policy discussion to have. Uh, But we always need to keep in mind here that we shouldn't be hasty on making prescriptive decisions at a government level that could have externalities we don't see coming. Um, I thought it was odd even that the premier was being asked about it because it doesn't seem like it's something that would have to be legislated. It seems like it's something that if a business, if it works for a business, they could implement it or if it doesn't work, not. That's certainly true in B.C. Some businesses are already open less than five days a week. Now, those type of agreements can get complicated due to, you know, not wanting to make your employees working overtime and making sure that everything's kosher on the employment standards frontier. Um, But that being said, that's exactly right. Uh, We do want policies that promote flexibility. And it's no surprise we're having this conversation at this time right now. You know, the conversation about how do we improve people's mental health? That's been at the pinnacle of a lot of discussions during this pandemic. And we do want to have happy, productive people. That's a good thing. That's something that business owners want. Uh, But it's important to realize that productivity levels right now are, are already significantly stunted. And and it does seem like something that if you were to move to that model, because you're right, I know a lot of people that work four hour work week or four day work weeks. Four hour would be nice, wouldn't it? Not four day work <laughs> weeks. Um, but and the the combination of some, it's it's a set four days and it's four ten hour days. Uh, some that share four on four off, and it's almost like a job share with somebody else, and you keep the rotation going. Uh, it does work in those scenarios. And I guess one of the questions might be: Does it lead to more productivity if people have? A three day or three days to to regroup and to uh, to to rest to spend time with friends and family does that mean the time that they spend working is then more productive 
Yeah, I know there certainly are studies out there that have looked at this and does a shorter work week uh, result in higher productivity levels and happiness for that employee. And we do need to keep in mind that while those studies may have seen positive results when they were run, we are in the middle of a pandemic right now. And if a policy like this were to be introduced, we could see things happen that we really don't want to right now. So small businesses, for example, they're already operating on razor thin margins. And if the price of jobs remains the same, but those businesses aren't seeing an increase in the benefit, that could mean lost jobs. And right now, that's really not something British Columbia can afford. I mean, as we've seen the employment, uh, the labor stats come out very recently, and BC is very much still hurting. The uh, unemployment level still very high. Uh, do you think, though, we will, and I totally get what you're saying, and there are certainly, even as we talk about reopening, there are still businesses that are a far way from getting back to that level that they were at before, say, back in March. Uh, are we open, though, to having the conversations in that, for many people, it's been forced, the idea of working from home, and then people might have might realize, well, wait a minute, not having a commute actually is a great thing, and I can do my job from home. Are we going to, do you think, have more conversations about innovation and about how workplaces will look different? Absolutely. I think flexible work arrangements are something that we have been talking about for a few years now and have become more popular. But certainly with a lot of people, I mean, in my community, even I see working from home now, um, I think that's an option that businesses will be exploring. But let's keep in mind for a lot of our small businesses who are bricks and mortar, that might not be an option in that scenario. So while there are certainly ways we can look at increasing flexibility in the workplace and making sure we do have happy employees, uh, it's really important that we let this progress as, you know, a social movement and a discussion that we're having and it not be prescriptive policy that we see at a government level because we do need to project tro- uh, protect jobs and we do need policies that help job creation, not stifle it. And and how do you see businesses or what are you hearing from businesses as we are now at this stage in the reopening? Are things going as smoothly as can be expected? Is there an appetite, do you think, to do things faster? Well, I, I can tell you for certain the small business owners who I've spoken with and what I see in our uh, survey data that CFIB issues to small business owners, they're still really stressed. Um, while we have seen a lot more businesses reopen, uh, nearly half of them are still not operating at full capacity. So this means stunted revenues. You have a lot of taxes and costs coming up due in just a few months here. And, and many are really wondering, will they be able to even make it through this pandemic? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel for their business? So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty, still a lot of stress. But that being said, I don't want to be the pessimistic person here. Um, I, uh, you know, walking down the main streets of Vancouver, where I'm located, I, I am seeing businesses with their doors open. And I am seeing people going out and supporting those local businesses. And that is a really great thing to see. And I'm absolutely encouraging people, you know, if you feel safe, go outside. Um, these businesses, they are following great measures to ensure that the protection of their employees, their customers, their health is top of mind. And it's really great to see people back out stimulating the local economy. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. And a lot of people are so happy to be seeing that as well. Although it's got to come at a cost for businesses too, even if it's the, the cost of setting up plexiglass, of bringing in other cleaning measures, that's got to be an added cost to even get to that point to reopen. 
Yeah, it certainly is. And something that uh, we've started to see even at some businesses is a uh, surcharge for these costs. Uh, I've heard a couple people talking about it already, but it's important to keep in mind that uh, how much these small businesses have struggled being ordered to close down, having absolutely no revenue coming in, but still having to pay rent, still having to pay property taxes. Um, A lot of small business owners have had to tap into their credit cards, their personal savings, even just to try and keep afloat. Um, So while it's really difficult times right now, it is important we keep in mind how important it is to support our local businesses and our communities because we're, it's all our responsibility to, to really support each other during this time. And uh, that is what I'm seeing on the ground so far here. So something that I'm really happy to be seeing. All right, Muriel, we'll leave it there. Always good to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having CFIB on today. Well, as you've likely heard on the news, there is going to be a protest being held in Vancouver later today. That's happening at 4 p.m. at the Jack Poole Plaza. Fencing went up at the plaza. Unclear exactly how many people are expected, but police saying it could be in the thousands. And uh, so that is going to be a very busy area this afternoon. And uh, people hoping and calling for peaceful protests at uh, that gathering. Well, that is just one of many gatherings. Gatherings taking place, and as you can imagine, most uh, most of, of the gatherings, protests happening in the United States. We've also unfortunately seen acts of violence in New York alone. I think they said something like two thousand, more than two thousand arrests have been made in this past week. Well, let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, a Global News Washington correspondent, joining us now. Reggie, thanks for taking a few minutes with us. Good afternoon. Uh, where are you, and what's happening? We are standing on uh, 16th Street, which is where we've been for the last kind of nine nights, but a very different protest from what we've seen over the last few days. This protest is now essentially turning into more of a celebration. There's dancing in the streets, there's laughter, uh, there's, there's, there's happiness, there's uh, conversations, there's very little chanting, there's very little aggression right now. Uh, and what's also interesting about this protest right now, right at the end of the street, where we've seen all of that aggression at the entrance to Lafayette Square, there's not a single law enforcement personnel standing on the other side of the barrier. That's the first time uh, that there's been nobody in that park since we came here nine nights ago. Hmm. And uh, I should mention as well, I don't think I said uh, the reason that people are there in case people weren't uh, weren't aware, aren't aware. It is because of the death, the killing of George Floyd. Uh, why, Reggie, do you think the shift and, and, and that we've seen, unfortunately, we've seen these violence, uh, the violent incidents breaking out. We've seen some rioting in cases. What what led to the shift? Yeah, so we've seen that violence break out, and a lot of times that violence happens when curfews are trying to be enforced by police, uh, as people trying to push back, saying that they shouldn't be uh, told to go inside their house when there is just so much built-up rage and anger that they want to get out. But here in D.C., uh, we're now going into our second night without a curfew. These protests are becoming largely more peaceful as the days go by, uh, and officials have said, if you can continue like that, we won't force you to go in uh, into your homes anymore. Uh, and, and you're right, this is about uh, the life of George Floyd that was taken by officers in Minneapolis. It's also uh, for the life of Breonna Taylor, also who died in the United States, uh, and today would be her 27th birthday. So it's just, it's a shift in momentum. They feel that their messages are being heard by police departments across the country. And for now, uh, they're simply just saying that they are happy to be here and happy to be heard. Uh, I was seeing earlier today, too, a lot of postings of the Black Lives Matter being printed on the street uh, leading up or the street in front of the White House and the renaming of the street. A lot of people reacting to that. 
Yeah, you know what, it is, it's incredibly moving when you stand here. I mean, you, you see it on TV and you see three blocks plaintive with Black Lives Matter, but when you're actually standing in front of these letters right now, I'm standing in the in front of the A uh, from the first word, black, uh, and these letters are massive. They stretch from one side of the street to the other. It stretches three city blocks all the way down to what is now the newly Black Lives Matter Plaza uh, towards the entrance of Lafayette Park. And it's just another one of those moments of the mayor of D.C. trying to reclaim her streets back from what she saw as federal overreach from the president, trying to take control of her city, but also uh, in, in, a, in a stand of solidarity with these protesters who the mayor has shown uh, an incredible amount of empathy for since they came out here. And from what we're seeing in other parts of the states, too, do you think that the shift is going to be happening elsewhere also? I mean, it is possible. We have seen, uh, as you mentioned off the top, a couple of thousand arrests in New York. There's been more than 12,000 arrests overall across the country. But by and large, these are small amounts of arrests compared to the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who are coming out to protest. You know, the president has really tried to put the focus on this violence by being parts of the far left, while other parts are saying that it's mixed in with the far right as well. But at the end of the day, it's just a small amount, a small fraction of these protests that are turning violent. And they've really been dominating the headlines. And it takes away from what the cause of these protests have been in the first place, which is they're trying to find uh, a way to to fix what they see as a broken system. And what are you hearing from people as far as why this is different? And we're hearing uh, many people using the phrase, it's a tipping point that that something has shifted. What are you hearing from people that are there and that are gathered? Well, you know what? It's unfortunate because we've, you know, I've lived in the U.S. for, for six years now, and this, you know, there have been a number of, uh, of police-involved killings when it comes to people of color and African-Americans. Uh, and this time, it was just different. And I think it's because more of these incidents are being caught on camera, so the police can't stand behind their, their, their you know, written-down defense uh, that something different happened. People are witnessing injustices happen, uh, and this was just the one that sparked that national conversation. Unfortunately, the problem sometimes we have in this country it goes right back to school shootings as well. There's a conversation about it when it happens. It finds its way to the back burner and it restarts that conversation again the next time it happens. Protesters are on the street now, today, hoping that it doesn't happen, hoping uh, hoping to see changes in police forces, which we're already starting to see in Minneapolis, we're already starting to see in Buffalo, and they really hope that that message is going to resonate so that this doesn't happen again, so they don't have to come back out here to keep protesting. Uh, you mentioned Breonna Taylor as well, and I know a lot of people posting and saying that yesterday would have been her 20th. 27th birthday that she should still be here the way that she was killed was absolutely horrific are you getting the impression are people uh, are people more not that it matters who you're you're out to protest for or who or what what has prompted you to come and be part of this but does it seem like like there is a, a big mix of people that are there because of George Floyd and people who are there because of Breonna Taylor you know, it's not even that they're here for one or for the other. They're here for the collective sum of African-Americans and people of color that they see have been treated unfairly by police, not just over the last couple of months or the last couple of years, uh, but for, as we've been hearing, you know, from the mayor of Minneapolis for centuries now in this country. Uh, it's coming out here. If, if anyone was watching the George Floyd Memorial yesterday, uh, the lawyer for uh, the Floyd family got up and he was saying this memorial is for George Floyd, is for Breonna Taylor, but it's for Sandra Bland, it's for Philando Castile, it's for Freddie Gray, it's for Eric Gardner the names of people who have been pushed back into the history books and are being brought back to the center now as they say this isn't about one person this is about a movement that we need to make so this doesn't happen again uh, and you mentioned there's no law enforcement kind of on the other side of the gate uh, at this point are is there any law enforcement participating as well in the the protest in the rally 
No, there's no law enforcement that are actively walking around right now uh, uh, in uniform. You know, the streets are kind of blocked off on both sides. The police are actively just communicating with people that are standing by. Again, very different from what we saw over the last few days, but also notably different is we're seeing far fewer federal law enforcement. The Pentagon has actually recalled some of those active duty military members that the president had deployed uh, without the mayor of D.C.'s authorization. This is a point of contention in the White House. This goes against what the president wants. Uh, today, during a, a uh, Rose Garden news conference, the president was still talking about how you have to dominate the streets and show this strong-armed uh, approach, but it's being met with resistance within his own administration, and we're seeing a slow trickle away of these federal troops now out of the district. How long is the event today supposed to, to take place, or what do you see happening as far as today and, and moving into the days, the weekend and the days ahead? Well, you know, these protests, they, they start during the afternoon and oftentimes they do continue well into the early morning hours, not in large numbers, but there are still protesters that stand at the fence to Lafayette Square. This could be something that lasts for a few hours. We are expecting another bout of severe rain here uh, and thunderstorms, so that could start to uh, make the crowds trickle down just a little bit. Uh, but tomorrow is going to be a huge test for law enforcement in D.C. There are no less than five demonstrations that are expected to take place, uh, including one which they're calling a million-person march at the historic Lincoln Memorial. It's unclear if that many people will actually show up, but it's expected to be uh, the largest get-together uh, since we've seen this, and so far the largest has only been 5,000. All right, Reggie, I know you're busy. We'll let you go. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you.